Hello, I'm your host Gillian Semler. You're listening to Let's Talk, brought to you by CityLets. Let's Talk is a dedicated property show for the world of property letting, investment, legislation, personal stories and much more. If you want to get in touch direct, just reach out. Let's talk at citylets.co.uk. Joining me today is Charlie Innes, Investment Manager at Glenham Property. Morning, Charlie. Good morning. Thank you for coming in. Pleasure. So you obviously have a wealth of varied experience spanning, gosh, over 20 years in the property industry. Yeah, too long. <laughs> and, you're, <laughs> and you're also a landlord yourself, yes. as you've mentioned, and you've got a portfolio of properties. Um, I'm aware your true passion, though, is property investment. So tell us a bit more about your journey in property to where you are now, just expanding a bit on... Um, we, well, I suppose it started, uh, well, to, to begin with, I started off um, working for a company in Edinburgh, uh, Central Letting in those days, um, where I was a lettings negotiator. I was the sort of chap that would take people out, um, show them flats, let them in, let them out, um, and spent my whole day meeting tenants and showing them around flats. Um, quickly moved on to property management um, and then ended up um, as a lettings manager for the company. Um, at that period of time, we had the advent of buy to let came onto the market. Uh, initially, as far as I remember, and um, you know, as I get older, <laughs> looking back is more difficult. Um, there was probably one buy to let product when it first started and the yeah. interest rates were, you know, significant. Mm -hmm. um, very, very quickly, interest rates came down mm -hmm. uh, as the products became more numerous and there was a high level of competition. And it opened up um, property as an asset class, as an investment class to, to, for want of a better word, your average guy, your average Joe public. Mm -hmm. um, the result was we saw uh, an opportunity to offer... Um, those individuals who either didn't have the time or the inclination, but wanted to get into property, the ability to be able to, to do that. Mm -hmm. We helped them um, find properties. We applied uh, re decent levels of due diligence and research on a property to ensure that our clients were buying properties that made sense as an investment. So it was initially the advent of buy to let, and I, I, I might be completely wrong in saying this, and, and no one please hold me to account, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that we were one of the first, if not the first company in, in Scotland to offer mm -hmm. that level of service. Um, and obviously, that was with the at the time I'd spent quite some time at by that point in yes. the property business, so uh -huh. I'd learnt myself and and we knew the market and we know the market intimately. Yes. So um, that's really where it all sort of kind of started and the property investment side of things. As I say, I, my my wife's family were also and historically always been mm -hmm. property investors themselves as well. Right. Uh, and um, but yes, I mean I, I I absolutely thoroughly enjoy what I do. Um, you know, I enjoy being out and about, and I enjoy. You know, someone seeing a one-bedroom flat in Gorgie sometimes and then a five-bedroom beautiful flat in the Newtown, yes. um, depending on what our clients are looking for. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there's been um, significant cuts to tax relief for buy-to-let landlords um, after Osborne's 2015 budget, as well as also the introduction of a 3% stamp duty surcharge. Yes, section, yeah, section 24. Yes, 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 joy. How, in your opinion, then, have these changes affected the buy-to-let market? 
I, it's, I think this is an interesting one. Um, there's lots of evidence, um, both anecdotal and from people, for example, like the RICS, mm -hmm. who are seeing buy-to-let landlords leaving the market. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to accept the fact that that is, yeah. that is happening. Um, my argument to that is quite often these people are probably, uh, have probably not necessarily bought well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the pitfalls of a DIY landlord is not understanding the market, mm -hmm. not understanding the pitfalls associated with buy-to-let, not really understanding property as an asset class, mm -hmm. uh, and being very, very highly geared, um, you know, under underperforming from a rental income point of view, high levels of costs that they haven't necessarily taken into account. And the added burden of an increase or a reduction in the ability to be able to offset mortgage has pushed them into a, into a position where they're probably no longer yeah. running a profitable uh, uh, investment. Um, so I think people are exiting. and I, But I think the number of people that are exiting are, are probably those, as I say, who are who perhaps aren't or haven't approached this in the right way and aren't, yeah. it isn't particularly the mm -hmm. best investment for them. The flip side of that is tenant demand hasn't diminished. No. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, we're seeing projected numbers of an increase in, in tenant numbers um, across the UK I've seen um, some figures uh, recently uh, from Knight Frank that have suggested that the uh, PRS will grow to be one in four households um, who will be renting privately in the UK by, I think it's 2021, right. um, which means we need 5.8 million properties just to meet demand. That's across the UK yes. and not in Scotland. Uh, however, the... The, the, uh, in Scotland, if we look at Scotland, the population is also increasing in size. The size of the PRS is mm -hmm. also increasing. And if we're seeing landlords exiting, mm -hmm. then there's enormous potential. Uh, and me as an investor at the moment, I'd be absolutely buying. Um, levels of demand, as I say, amongst uh, tenants remains high. Uh, Edinburgh as a city at the moment, if we're talking Edinburgh-centric, uh, has passed the 500,000 uh, population number point a couple of years ago, I believe, and is projected to grow at a rate of yeah. 5,000 people a year. We're completing on average 1,800, 1,900 new properties a year. Simple mathematics mm -hmm. dictate they need somewhere to live. Um, I think the PRS is projected to expand considerably in the next 10 or 15 years. Um, so... All of those things combined, I think, still offer a well-researched, professionally advised landlord opportunity to make a return on his asset. Do you think recent changes in legislation, such as the new PRT, have caused concern to landlords? Um, yes, in, in, in some respects. I, I think um, the there was a lot of negative talk in the industry around the PRT uh, when it first was mooted and, and eventually came into uh, into fruition, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, the number of events that I went to with people giving presentations on the fact that the world was about to end and we were all <laughs> going to lose the shirt off my back and, uh, you know, investors were going to be fleeing the market and it was all dreadful, et cetera, et cetera, were, were, was considerable. And, I, and me as an investor used to go along to those type of events and think, well, hang on a second here. Um, you know, the job of any investor or professional investment company 
is to react to changes in the market. Now, unless I decided to stand for Parliament and become First Minister, I'm not going to have the ability to be able to have a significant impact on those changes. My job to my clients is is to stay to stay relevant, and in order to do that, we have to react. Um, and I would have rather have listened to people giving presentations about right, okay, guys, it's happening. Mm-hmm. This is what I think we can do about it. Then oh, it's all dreadful. Scaremongering. <laughs> um, Scaremongering. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a massive knee-jerk reaction in the sort of kind yes. of landward-facing press about mm-hmm. it. Uh, it. Me personally, I never really had that much of a issue with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think the the legal framework. It, it, it works. We've been working with it now since beginning of January, and we've had no major significant mm-hmm. problems. Um, I think the ability to be for for, an, for a landlord to gain vacant possession through the mandatory clauses within the Act are mm-hmm. still robust enough. Um, the end of the section thirty three notice, the no fault ground for want of for, for, you know what mm-hmm. it's known as, was potentially uh, uh, an impact. Um, but again, the number of times that we as a company would actually end a tenancy using a section thirty three, mm-hmm. if we if a tenant wasn't wanting to move out, was was limited. Um, nine times out of ten, if a tenancy is operating, the tenants paying the rent and looking after the property and they're happy uh, and the landlord's getting his income and everything is all working well, there should be no reason to end a tenancy. Um, The other area of concern was the lack of the the fixed term. Mm -hmm. Now, certainly there is an argument around that to say that it's given or has it given our clients lack of continuity, if you like, a, a reduction in, in the number of, of pro- or an increase in the number of properties, shall we say, who are ending a tenancy before six months. Yes. We really haven't seen that yeah. as a company. Mm-hmm. What we have seen on the flip side of this, and this is an interesting one because it was aimed primarily at uh, offering tenants security of tenure, are landlords ending tenancies within six months. Yes. Because the ability to be able to end a tenancy, as long as you use one of the mandatory grounds, mm-hmm. so for example, if you're a landlord and you've decided to sell your flat, mm-hmm. you can end a tenancy and you can do that within six months. Mm-hmm. I've seen an, a couple of landlords do that recently. So the argument that is granting a higher level of security of tenure to tenants, I think is somewhat, yeah. is, is, is not quite right, is, is somewhat, mm-hmm. I'll rephrase that, is... is um, it's not quite what it was intending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, on another note, um, how do you think the political uncertainty surrounding Brexit is affecting the buy-to-let market in Scotland? Oh God! Yeah, mm. I didn't do that. Another Brexit question. <laughs> yeah. The pantomime. <laughs> um, oh, you know, sometimes I do. Sometimes think I just want to get this all over with. I it's, know. It, it's becoming such a a minefield. Mm-hmm. Um, in short, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have um, that much of a problem with it. I, I mean, uh, one of the things here is we're, 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 we're crystal ball gazing. Yes, it's all yeah. hypothetical. Mm-hmm. We don't know what mm-hmm. is going to happen. I don't think anyone does. I mean, yeah. I don't think even, I mean, Theresa May is trying to do her best, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
we don't know whether we're going to have a hard Brexit, a soft mm -hmm. Brexit. Are we going to crash out? Are we going to have a backstop here, this, that, and all the rest of it? I mean, goodness uh -huh. knows. Um, ultimately, uh, the, I mean, one of the things I, I would point out that it's and it's worth mentioning is since the yes vote. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of talk prior to that happening that there was going to be this crash in property yeah. prices, the economy was going to collapse, the world was going to stop turning. Uh, it, it hasn't happened. Um, undoubtedly, there have been some economic impacts, and I think we are potentially seeing a wee bit of a slowdown. However, the mm -hmm. economy is still performing. And what would be in, what's interesting to note is since the yes vote, property prices in Edinburgh have actually risen by 15%. Yes. Um, so, for example, then, if we see a, a hard Brexit and the economy takes a bit of a hit and we see price reduction, uh, Mark Carney talking about 35%. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that's scaremongering, yes. personally. I, I can't see how we could have that much of a readjustment. Mm -hmm. um, let's say we see the same level of readjustment um, that we saw uh, during the... Um, during the, the economic crisis, mm -hmm. the, 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 um, the credit crash, the crunch, or whatever you want to call it. Um, Edinburgh, as a city, took a bit of a hit in those days. Over, over a couple of years, it took a hit of around about 6%. Um, so let's say we have a bit of a hit to the economy. If we see a 6% or even a 7% reduction in price, that's only going to take us back to what we were, where we were at 2017. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I don't... I, can't see that it's going to be as significant a, a hit as some people are saying. Right. Um, one of the things we also need to take into consideration, for example, the pre-credit crunch um, was the, one of the things that created the pre-credit crunch bubble was mm -hmm. the ease of access to finance, yeah. cheap money, mm -hmm. uh, lending to anything. You could get a mortgage for, for whatever you liked. I mean, it was almost, you know, the giving them away. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember having one of my, uh, having a mortgage and being called up by the bank asking me if I wanted to borrow more money. <laughs> um, it, uh, it, it was easy. Yeah. Um, nowadays with the, with the mortgage market review, the MMR, the, the reins have been tightened on lending. Mm -hmm. Um, it is much more difficult to get finance. And I think that will take or certainly has taken some of the some of the heat out of the market. And it means lending is much, much, much more, much more sensible. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I, I think that will also mean to say that potentially we, we aren't necessarily going to see the crash because we haven't created that bubble quite yes. as much. Other people may argue different. I don't think we have in Scotland. Right. Um, Maybe looking further south, maybe mm -hmm. the southeast. Um, the other thing I'd also like to point out, actually, is is we, we we've been through crises before. I mean, we've had the oil crisis, we've mm -hmm. had hyperinflation, the four day week, mass mass unemployment, the gro the the global financial crash. Um, we're not building enough houses. We we do have a housing crisis mm -hmm. in this country, and the private rented sector is a way of fixing and helping that and not it's not a it's not a barrier no. um we're not building enough houses and ultimately people need a roof over their head mm. they need somewhere to mm -hmm. live so i and and finally the last thing we should say yes. as well is is property as a as an investment is a long-term investment yeah. it's not a cheap sorry it's not a quick fix it's not an instant get rich quick deal no. uh you know if you're in property primarily 
as a as an asset class and you're not doing the sort of kind of buy and flip type of model yeah. which some people do um it's a long-term it's a long-term mm -hmm. strategy you're in it for 10 15 mm -hmm. years and if that is the case the long-term trajectory should be something you should be looking at and not necessarily what's happening in the short term yeah Okay, well, with all of these aspects in mind, what type of properties and which locations would you recommend to first-time property investor in Edinburgh? <laughs> You're asking me to give away the yeah, secrets here. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> well, I suppose the first thing I would, would, would confront would be the first-time property investor. Um, property as, a, as an investment is a complex um, and difficult mine-laden form of investment mm -hmm. with the opportunity for very significant return uh, of in, uh, return on investment ROI uh, we're seeing uh, clients of ours generating 10 to 15 percent ROI on a geared investment but it does come with risk and I wouldn't necessarily now suggest to a first-time buyer to go into the marketplace on their own and try and buy something because I think the opportunity to make a significant mistake is is a is is huge. Mm -hmm. um, my suggestion would always be take professional advice. Yes. Go to people that are intimately involved in the market, that know the market, and understand the pitfalls. Mm -hmm. Um, that said, um, you know, the, the, the best thing really any investor should be looking for are areas of regeneration, um, changes to the infrastructure, uh, areas that are potentially lagging behind a wee bit from what we would call prime location. Mm -hmm. um, so th there are, in short, significant opportunities if you know where to look. Yes. And my argument to that is you need to come and speak to people like me. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> Often people think buy to let, you know, is an easy investment option. What pitfalls or common mistakes should first-time investors be aware of before entering the market? The first one is you've got to understand that property is a physical asset. Mm -hmm. bricks and mortar it mm -hmm. needs to be maintained um, this idea that you're going to buy this wonderful property that's going to offer you these all these wonderful returns and you're going to have loads of money coming in uh, and not spend any is is <laughs> seriously flawed mm -hmm. um, you have to have a a maintenance program in place mm -hmm. and have to expect to spend money on keeping the place at its best. I don't understand why uh, any property investor wouldn't spend money on their property because that is the asset. And in order to maintain it and make sure that you are going to generate the best return you can, you need to look after it. Yes. Um, so that's one of the things I would say to people, be aware that things will go wrong. Your boiler might blow up. You might have to fix the roof, whatever. Mm -hmm. Have And have the money to be able to do that. Yes. We see a lot. One another reason potentially why a lot of landlords are leaving because of around changes around taxation is it's reduced their income. Yeah. And their the results the result of that is that that's that the ability for them to be able to maintain the property has also been reduced. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also legal implications to that. A landlord is needs to be uh, needs to maintain the property. They have to make sure that they 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 they. They respect the, the repairing standard, as mm -hmm. it's called. The property has to be wind and watertight, etc. Um, there are a huge raft of legal, regulatory, 
um, and safety certification um, responsibilities for a landlord, and they are endless, mm-hmm. and they keep and they're they're they're, they're increasing every year. Now, I I don't think that's a bad thing. I think. Um, Tenants have an absolute right to live in a property that is well maintained, looked after, that is safe. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that and, mm-hmm. and, and will continue to bang the drum and, and will never, ever be interested in speaking to these landlords that, 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 that give us, the rest of us, a bad name. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, maintenance being one, um, void times. Mm-hmm. Be aware that your flat isn't or your property isn't going to be let 365 days a year forever because it won't be. There will be periods of time where the property will be empty. And if you have leverage on the property, you're paying a mortgage, you will need to cover the cost of that while the property is empty. Of course. So be aware of that. Um, I think that probably covers it. I mean, basically, you're looking at the, the the level of of regulation the the, the legal requirements mm-hmm. the the yeah i mean the number of pitfalls are significant and again that really means they they should i, I can't unless you are a landlord with a large number of properties that is doing this professionally mm-hmm. uh, as a essentially as a job mm-hmm. um my suggestion would always be to go to a professional agent Absolutely. and get it looked after cuz it's hard for landlords to be aware of legislation that's you know changed or is about to come into effect um you know it's not something that's always made you know publicly aware isn't it it's hard for landlords to keep on top themselves unless they've got advice from someone absolutely you know, professional, an agent or absolutely and new regulations are coming in all the time yes. the latest one in scotland will be the changes around energy performance certificates yes. and so on um and however hard government and and um central government if, if you like um try to to educate um individuals or landlords by putting stuff out there in the ether on the internet or whatever there will people mm-hmm. who will miss it yes. now our job as a, pro, as a as a professional company is to be intimately involved and to be and to be professionally trained, mm-hmm. um, we at Glenham have always been members of ALA. All our staff have always been professionally trained, and we we continue uh, with our training and personal development, and keeping abreast of the changes yes. within the industry and advising our clients accordingly. Now, Glenham Property offer a full landlord investor service. So, tell us a bit more about this. Um, I, we've probably kind of touched a little yeah. bit on, on what we do already. Um, our job primarily is to try and mitigate our clients' risk um, while at the same time seeking to source properties that offer them the best opportunity for a return on their investment. Um, and that doesn't mean just going down the road and buying a plat because it's got a nice front door or, um, you know, it's it's got a nice cornice in the main living room and so on and so forth. You need to be far more astute than mm-hmm. that and, and to look at property as an investment um, and, and, and try and remove the emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a tangible asset and also because everyone in the UK seems to think that they are property experts, mm-hmm. um, it means that there is always an emotive tie. Uh, and even some of my overseas clients who, who don't even see some of the properties that they own, they will sometimes say to me, no, I don't want to buy this one because I don't like the color of the front living oh, room. Gosh. And it's like, well, you know, hang on a second, we can change that. Yeah. So what we try to do is remove the emotion 
uh, is ensure that our clients are buying something that is going to offer them the best possible opportunity for a return, mm -hmm. mitigate their risk, and give them the best possible advice that we can do is build a relationship and build trust. And I've been doing this, as you say, quite rightly for over 20 mm -hmm. years now. So hopefully in that period of time, I've learned something. Yes. And I can pass that on to my clients. That has a value. Exactly. Now, I'm admiring your tweed jacket that you have on today. And as much as you're known in the property industry, not everyone will be aware that you had your own tweed company, didn't you, with your father-in-law and wife? Is that right, Hunter Tweed? That's right, yes. Um, Tell us a bit more about the origin of the business. Uh, I, I had a brief sojourn. Um, well, it wasn't that brief, I suppose. It was seven, nearly eight years, um, living up in Caithness, um, running a traditional Scottish sporting estate. Uh, and during that time, my uh, wife's family owned a company called Hunters of Brora, Hunters Tweed. Um, my father-in-law had bought it, um, and uh, my wife and I decided to uh, relaunch it, uh, reinvigorate the brand. And uh, yeah, we ran it for a number of years. Um, we built the, the business up. This? What years was this? Um, oh, now you're asking me. Mm. Uh, let me think. It would have been, where are we now? It would have been about 2000 and when we moved up to Keith, it's about 2010, right. around that time. Um, so, uh, two, probably 2012, 2010, 2012, we were running it. Um, we had a shop, mm -hmm. uh, we did quite a lot of business overseas, um, selling tweed to, uh, Japan, right. um, America, um, interestingly enough, Italy. <laughs> uh, I went to, um, I went to Pitti Romo. Uh, the male fashion show uh, or specialist fashion event in Florence, wow. um, which was great fun, yeah. uh, and it was it was a really interesting journey. Um, we we dealt with a lot of um, very high end tailors on Savile Row, mm -hmm. uh, and what it did teach me is the um, the value of skill and the value of time. Yes. Um, when you buy a suit from Savile Row, it might set you back 5,000 quid. Mm -hmm. However, the time involved in building that and manufacturing it and the skill involved is incredible. Mm. And you build a relationship with your tailor. It's not a one-off event. You yes. don't just walk in and buy a suit. You actually build a relationship. You go back for fittings and you should have a suit that's been made by Savile Row for your life. It's it's yeah. a it's an investment, uh, and it, it does lend itself in a really weird way to the property industry because, or certainly what I do, mm -hmm. because because again I'm very keen on on building relationships, and it's a relationship of trust, and it you know we we are as a as a business we offer mm -hmm. a quality product and it's something you know, built over time again, isn't it? Exactly, mm -hmm. and and working with clients is all about building empathy, mm -hmm. uh, building trust, um, and proven track record and professional skill. Yes. Um, you know, these guys that make suits on Savile Row have been doing it for years, yeah. and they're massively and highly skilled in what they do, and I like to think that that's what we are too. Yeah. And, and how many of these suits do you have in your wardrobe, <laughs> <laughs> do we ask? Uh, I've got a, I, I was very lucky uh, um, because um, we, we, we on occasion, the tailors would, 
would 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 make a suit for mm-hmm. me uh and we would for example i went over to america mm-hmm. for a trip um and we met a lot of um overseas tailors but also we, we were doing some work with a with a with a high uh, high net worth um golf company mm-hmm. they had a essentially they they they're a it's a club um and they play golf all over the world yeah. but they don't just go and fly over and cattle class mm-hmm. they have private jets that fly them yeah. to uh, St Andrews or somewhere <laughs> and we designed their club tweed right, um, and, and and made it uh, and so I went over and met with them um, so I had some suits made yes. for that type of event and I went over and, and you know it was great fun and we went to New York with my wife and yeah you know it was really good yeah, fun so I was fancy. very lucky and I had one or two suits that I do have yeah. in my wardrobe. Well, talking just about, obviously, you know, the club tweed and things, actually, can you tell us a bit more about the history and purpose of tweeds themselves? Yeah, tweed, um, it, it, tweed is a very different thing to tartan. Um, tartan in Scotland obviously has a family connection. Um, and historically, when the clans, uh, the clans all had their, obviously, their estates and so on. And Scotland, uh, with the advent of the Victorian era, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert suddenly became trendy again. Mm-hmm. They bought Balmoral and um, Prince, uh, Queen Victoria loved Scotland, as did Albert. And um, the result was um, the English aristocracy suddenly decided that they wanted to have a Scottish estate. Mm. And quite often the the clan chieftains and the Scottish clans were probably, shall we say, uh, a little bit worse off than some of the further, the, the aristocracy further south. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of these, some of these places were bought by English aristocracy. Now, they didn't have a connection on a family basis. They wouldn't be able to wear a tartan, mm-hmm. um, but they would be able to wear plaid or wear a tweed. And essentially, the result was that the the estates were able to design tweeds that had a specific uh, reference to a location, a locality. They also were essentially a sort of kind of camouflage. So each individual estate tweed would pull in the colours from the from the hill, from oh, out, uh-huh. you know, and they would try and build it into their tweed. So when they were out there marching around with a gun, stalking deer, uh-huh. uh, they would camouflage they would the be, landscape. Exactly. Um, so that was the sort of kind of basis. Um, you know, there was it, it was essentially um, obviously the River Tweed. There is a name, and, yes. and a lot of it was manufactured. In the borders, in the in oh, the mill yes, towns, the mm-hmm. um, but um, a lot of the sort of kind of new owners, the new estate owners, were able to have their own estate tweeds. Mm-hmm. And and Hunter's tweed, at one point, was meant to have had the um, the rights to all the estate tweeds. Right. Uh, and we used to have all the books. And in in when you manufacture tweed, you don't have a, a pattern. It's called a recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had all the recipes for the estate tweeds, and we were able to start trying to manufacture those again. Gosh. But obviously, anyone can have a tweed. You can design a tweed. Yeah. I can design a tweed. You, you can put, do whatever you like. And it's a very, very uh, usable material. Yes. And nowadays, you have lightweight tweeds. And, you know, it's not the old heavyweight tweeds where you would march around on the hill and, you you know, you finish the, the day out at, 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 the, at the stags or the hinds. Uh, you could stand the trousers off 
up in the corner and they would still stand in the morning. You know, they're <laughs> thick, heavy weight. But um, yeah, so, you know, nowadays it lends itself much more to sort of urban yes. wear uh, and that kind of thing. So do you miss, you know, miss being involved? What, what made you pull out of that side of things? Uh, well, it was an interesting on. period. We, we, I, I, uh, I met my wife um, in Edinburgh. I was working um, for a property company um, uh, in Edinburgh at the time. Um, uh, in fact, the gentleman whose name will shall remain who uh, we will not name at the right. moment is one of owns one of your direct competitors yes. you probably know who I'm talking about and I'm sure <laughs> if he listens to this he will as well uh, however um, we met my I met my wife um, she lived in London uh, I ended up moving down to London and I worked in uh, the property industry in London right. um, in Chelsea Mayfair Fulham um, Belgravia areas like that which right. was an interesting mm-hmm. period I have to say uh, it was a a bubble within a bubble. It mm, was a very, very strange place. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife and I lived in London for uh, probably a year or so. And we were given the opportunity then to go up to Caithness and run my wife's father's estate. Right. Uh, and we moved up there. Um, and that was when I sort of kind of moved slightly away from property. Although we... I still managed property. My my family, my wife's family, sorry, had some property uh, in London, and we obviously had a fair amount of property on the estate that was rented either to tenants or to estate workers. And again, we managed those, and we managed the right. the, 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 the the portfolio in London. Rumor has it that you were quite the roar in oh, your goodness. youth. <laughs> a little birdie told me. Uh-huh. And um, you were captain of the school rowing club, and I then was. you rowed for the first eight at university. I did. You've also rode at Henley. I did. So tell us a bit more about all of your rowing achievements. Um, yeah, so I uh, I was used to be a rugby player uh, and did also continue to play rugby. But um, I injured myself uh, playing rugby when I was uh, relatively young. I, I not, not significantly, but I, I just had some issues with my back. Yeah. And decided to take up a slightly less demanding, physically demanding sport in the sense of the knocks. Mm-hmm. And I took up rowing. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, I was at school uh, on the Thames, and it was a lovely place to row. It was yeah. fantastic. And and uh, um, being at a at a, I'm afraid to admit a, a private school, mm-hmm. an all boys school, it also gave us the opportunity to go out and meet girls. <laughs> Stunning. <laughs> Uh, so, so that was really the reason. <laughs> that was one of the main drivers, if I'm honest. Absolutely. Going to all the local regattas and, and rowing and then going off and you could go and meet some of the local girls and so on. It was great fun. Yeah. Uh, and it got you out of the school. Uh, right. And uh, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a very physically demanding sport. Yes. Uh, I mean, it really is. From a from a fitness level, rowers are some of the fittest people you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. It's because um, you use all your main muscle groups. You're using every single major muscle group in mm-hmm. the body, uh, and it's very intense. So, uh, but I loved it. I mm-hmm. was it was it was great, and we continued to do it at, at, at Edinburgh. Um, my my um, my time with rowing with the senior eight, the first eight, was very limited because unfortunately by that point I decided that, that university was more about drinking beer and having fun <laughs> than spending a lot of time sitting on an ergo. You could meet girls in bars and you could. Yeah, yes, amazing. using oars <laughs> in a boat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so do you still row now or do you just no, cruise along? just, yeah, yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I go to Henley every year still. Yes. Uh, and I enjoy sitting on the banks of the river with a pims or something yeah. in my hand, watching other crews sweating away while I just make some sort of kind of comments about how much better I could do it. 
Fantastic. Well, rowing is obviously a hugely competitive team sport, Absolutely. as you've mentioned. Um, what do you think this sport has given you that you can draw upon in your professional life? Don't give up. Yeah. Um, it, it's something. It, it, it's something that's really important. I think. I, I think we, we, in in the real world, in business, you are going to fail from time mm -hmm. to time. That deal that you thought was going to go through isn't doesn't go through for whatever reason it is. And however hard you try, sometimes these things happen, and you've got to accept that. It, it, there's no point trying to. Um, overly analyze something and say, right, you know, what, what, what went wrong there? Sometimes mm -hmm. some things go wrong. Uh, and you've got to get up, brush mm -hmm. yourself off, get back on and start again. Mm -hmm. um, rowing taught me that. Uh, it also taught you focus. Um, to be a good rower, you had to be really focused. At the beginning of a race, you know, you, we used to you know, you'd try and psych yourself up yeah. and everything else. So that level of focus to, to, to concentrate on the goal, if you like, and where you want to get to, uh, I think was an important thing. Um, working as a team, um, we at Glenham are very much a team. It's not just... It's not just me and anyone else. Yeah. There's a whole team of us there who are pulling together for our, and you see what I said there, pulling together. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, like very that. good, very good. Uh, who are pulling together <laughs> for our clients. Um, so, um, so, yeah, teamwork, mm -hmm. focus, and don't give up. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, well, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure chatting My to pleasure you. Too. So thank you for coming in. Thank you very much indeed, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. It's great. I'm Gillian Semler. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to the Let's Talk channel on all the usual platforms, including Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud. And also let your friends know where to find us. Let's Talk is a dedicated property show providing insight into the world of property letting. More information on today's show can always be found in our show notes along with this podcast. If you want to get in touch, just reach out. Let's Talk at citylets.co.uk. 